0: I'm giving you a lot of information, but this is basically what Russian ufology has been.
1: Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. For those folks who have been to BOA in the last few days, you may have seen BOA 2.0. We have finally launched the new look for Banal of America It is definitely still a work in progress and thus, we want to hear your feedback on the new look for the website. We're going to be making some small changes here and there, adjusting the various text sizes and stuff like that. But there's probably a lot of stuff we haven't even thought of. So let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to see improved or changed at BOA 2.0, and we will get on it right away. Hat tip and big thanks, of course, to our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. He's the guy that really put this thing all together. I'm just sort of the ideas man. He did all the work. So big thanks to him for his design skills. And he's on the team for good, my friends. And he's going to be hard at work on a whole bunch of other cool stuff for BOA in the future. Now that we've taken care of the in-house notes, let's get down to business on this week's edition of the program. It is a barn burner, my friends. We're going to go international once again. Our guest is Paul Stonehill, expert on the UFO phenomenon in the Soviet Union and the Soviet research community. This conversation is a feast of information from Paul Stonehill. For any serious student of ufology, you're going to learn so much I came to the conclusion when we were done with the conversation that you could seriously do a weekly Just Russian ufology podcast talking about all the different stuff in the history of Russia and the Soviet Union with regards to UFOs. It is that rich and deep. So we tried to scratch the surface here as best we could and cover as much as we could to give you an idea of what the UFO phenomenon in the Soviet Union was like and what it's like today In Russia and the surrounding satellite states. Just to give you an idea of what we're going to be talking about in this conversation, we're going to cover some of the key cases in Soviet UFO history, the evolution of ufology in the Soviet Union, how the government and military reactions to the phenomenon have changed over the years, and the media coverage of UFOs not only in the Soviet Union but now in contemporary times. Over the course of the conversation, we're going to delve into a whole bunch of different, very detailed areas, including Soviet USOs, unidentified submerged objects, of which there are just countless cases. We're going to hear about the testimony of Russian cosmonauts regarding aliens, UFOs, and space whispers. We'll hear about the mysterious humanoids of Lake Baikal, We'll cover the Tunguska incident, the Voronezh case, and we'll talk a little bit about Chinese ufology as well as VOBOS, the moonlet of Mars, and why it seems like Russia and many other countries have an unusual interest in this moonlet. You could tell that Paul Stonehill had so much to say. My questions are pretty broad going into this, and I just let him Unleash the information and I sat back and was just soaking it in. It was so much stuff and so remarkable. By the time the interview was concluded, it was clear to me that we're going to have to revisit the former Soviet Union in the future here on BOA Audio. That's how deep the UFO phenomenon in the USSR goes. Nonetheless, get ready for two hours worth of mind blowing material here from Paul Stonehill as BOA Audio makes its first foray over to the former Soviet Union in search of UFO answers. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Paul Stonehill, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Paul Stonehill was born in Kiev, USSR in nineteen fifty nine and emigrated to the United States in nineteen seventy two. In his youth, Paul helped smuggle people out from behind the Iron Curtain, aided dissidents, and smuggled banned literature into the USSR. He graduated from California State University with a B.A. in Political Science, and wrote a thesis on the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. He's worked as a journalist covering warfare, as well as freelancing, on stories about UFOs and anomalous phenomena. In October 1993, Omni Magazine featured a story about Paul's work and the Russian Ufology Research Center, which he created back in 1991. Paul Stonehill is the co-author, along with Philip Mantle, on a number of books regarding the UFO phenomenon in the former Soviet Union, including Mysterious Sky, the Soviet UFO Phenomenon, Soviet UFO Files, and UFO Case Files of Russia. His website is www.healingsofatlantis.com. Pretty simple, all one word, healingsofatlantis.com. Check it out. And now, without any further ado, Let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on June 4th, 2010. Paul Stonehill talking about the UFO phenomenon in the former Soviet Union on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Ben All of America Audio. I am very, very excited about this week's edition of the program. We are going international once again discussing the world of ufology in a whole other country outside of america and we're tackling a big one this time around we're talking about the former soviet union russia and all the side countries that used to be a part of the soviet union and our guest is paul stonehill he's the co-author of a number of books his most recent one is ufo case files of russia which he's co-authored with philip mantle and he's also written other books as well such as Mysterious Sky, the Soviet UFO Phenomenon. So he's well-versed on the history of UFO events and UFO studies in the former Soviet Union, and I'm very excited to have him here on the program to discuss this huge topic. Welcome to the program, Paul Stonehill.
0: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad this is an opportunity to let your listeners know that, yes, there's a whole other world to you, ufology, very, very interesting research, very unusual that has been taking place in the Soviet Union as is taking place in, in contemporary China and hopefully in other places, but unique because the Soviet Union was a totalitarian state which basically had uncontrollable power source and uh, because there was no any sort of control over the actions of the Soviet government, uh, except for the infighting between the Politburo members, they were able to do basically whatever they wanted, short of attacking other countries and getting away with it. Usually they, you know, they, I mean, usually they, they were not stopped by anybody else. So they definitely wanted to expand, to exert more power, sometimes openly, sometimes stupidly, like in Afghanistan, but they were doing things things that had attracted attention to the objects we call UFOs and USOs. USOs would be unidentified submersible objects. Yeah. And because the Soviets were quite interested in what's going on in the sky above them and in the waters below them, uh, they had been observing and registering this unusual objects trying to find out whether they present any threat to the soviet system to the soviet government and to see if they could use any of the technology captured copied or gained in any other way now this is not just hearsay they had an official program that was in existence from 1978 till 1991 and it's described in, in the books that Philip and I put together and we keep adding uh, to to you know to the information we get because we're doing constant research and get information from Russia and other neighboring states mm-hmm. as often as possible even you know before uh, getting ready for, for this interview i was doing work about Chukotka uh, for example it's 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 a peninsula not far away from the united states very interesting one just, you know, getting more photo information, more cases, because we are working now on a separate book dedicated only to USOs. There is so much information, and it's so interesting that it will blow the lid of, of you know, a lot of very strange cases that had taken place in the oceans and seas of our planet. But I want to go back to the program that I had mentioned. Mm-hmm. The name of the program was Sietka. Initial name was Sietka, meaning NET in russian and it was split into two different sections so to say one was the academic research and the other the more more progressive and more efficient was the military part of the program the academic research was basically staffed and controlled by people who did not believe in ufo's who didn't want to be bothered with all this uh nonsense as they would say and who did their best not to do pure research not to study what they had in their hands and not to let others who were quite eager to study this scientists yeah they wanted to keep them away well the military people are not as um, should I say obscure or obstinate as the academic researchers some of them tend to be and they wanted to get answers so in the years that followed they basically got together with independent UFO researchers and formed another organization in the Soviet Union that was being used to suck out information from the general population. Generally, you know, Every Soviet citizen had the right to send in their, his or her information about UFO sightings, and the independent research was done. Now, of course, to the limit. I mean, military people... Uh, held the control you know they were in control they wanted to see what's going on so they were getting information as much as possible from both ends at the same time they had two different military research center institutions charged with analysis of this incoming information we have some information about what setka had been able to gain or capture or keep most of the files allegedly had been burned by these academic researchers when the Soviet Union was no more. Um, Which I don't believe, of course, and I think we will be able to get a little bit more information in the future years. I'm not holding my breath. (laughs) Russia is changing, and, uh, you know, they have their own priorities nowadays. They're flexing muscles because the world is now wide open and no one is in control. So, you know, they're doing what they need to do. Plus... They want to expand their control over the Arctic territories, just like a few other states, and they're getting ready for the future battle. Now, the Arctic territories are very important because, as we had shown in our books, USOs and UFOs have been present there for years due to the strategic nature of the area, due to, of course, Soviet interest and expansion there, and, uh, you know, with this calm military test, and as we have, as we show in our book, whenever there was a strategic military test or a launch of a spaceship in the Soviet Union, 99% of the cases UFOs were present. To the extent that one of the academicians, means, well-known academicians in the Soviet Union, basically said, you know, that it looks like we're under a microscope, and you know, what can we do? They try. They try to do something. There were a number of cases, some we know about, most probably we will never do, we'll find out when Soviet military tried to shoot down UFOs or capture strange beings in their deep water lakes. They never had, and, you know, we we show this in UFO case files uh, of Russia. I'll get to the book a little bit later, but they were not really successful. I mean, uh, we show in the book some of the statements where they allegedly had success Um, We also show the interesting archaeological finds or hints of archaeological finds in the Soviet Union where whatever was recovered might have added to the advancement of science and technology. For example, we mention Professor Burdakov quite a number of times in our books He was one of those who had worked in the Soviet space program, one of the most brilliant and knowledgeable Russian scientists in in, in the field of uh, engineering, machinery engineering, and rocket building, and a brilliant and brave man. Because of brave people, outspoken people like him, Russia moves forward, you know, regardless of communist ideologues. Well, this gentleman is important because even in the days of Stalin, he was not afraid to study UFOs, or, you know, and how was this study conducted? People who had seen something unusual would tend to write letters to uh, Soviet, um, uh, you know, uh, space ob- – uh, Soviet, obs- uh, Soviet, observ- uh, Soviet observatories. Yeah. And, you know, he would take notes, and he was even <laughs> once or twice not afraid to conduct lectures. So somebody – of course, there was a stool and Somebody turned him in. But his protector was no other than Sergei Korolev, another bright man who died early because of the years he spent in Stalinist camps. He was the father of Soviet space science, somebody who also believed in the uh, presence of UFOs and had seen some. Now, Korolev protected a professor, well, not professor at the time, but scientist named Burdakov, uh, and actually sent him to, to other observatories, a punishment you know, so to say. And in the future years, um, because of uh, people in between, uh, you know, their friends and colleagues, uh, Burdakov found out about Karalev's meeting with Stalin, about UFO information obtained from the United States. And I'll get to it. And Burdakov also mentioned a very interesting case, getting back to archaeology, of an object that was given to top Soviet uh, scientists academicians in the early 1950s to analyze it and to come out with their findings and to state what is the nature of the object so they looked at this tiny object they studied it and they said we do not know what it is well today we know what a microchip looks like not in the early 1950s so somewhere you know the ultimate agency with the KGB of the time, somewhere the KGB was able to get it, whether from an archaeological expedition uh, in the Soviet Union, which, which quite possibly, I believe, uh, took place. And we mention it uh, in, in, the, um, in a, one of our chapters dealing with the so-called Kiev rocket that was discovered in 1948, or in some other areas, maybe in the northern Russia, where they had very interesting and strange archaeological expeditions maybe in the Kola Peninsula. But the fact is, they had something in their hands, and Burdakov was brave and smart enough and not indifferent. He was somebody who wanted to know, He wrote it down. And in the future years, as you get, uh, we have a part of the book dedicated to Soviet space programs and uh, Phobos' mission to Mars, actually to the moonlet of Mars called Phobos, you will find out that Burdakov was one of those who had questioned the whole mission, and uh, kind of knew what the outcome would be based on an idea that Phobos is an artificial moonlet of Mars, as Soviet science had known. Actually, as Daniel Defoe, an English author, knew before, and a few other people, I guess, thousands of years before, knew the existence of such. I know I don't want to say thousands, hundreds of years before, about, knew the, about the existence of the very strange moonlets of Mars. Well, he knew about it too. He wanted to find out why this mission was taking place in 1989. He warned how it would end, and basically it did. Wow! Not long ago, Buzz Aldrin, uh, speaking, I believe on CNN, but I'm not sure, mentioned that there is a sentinel on the moon of Mars, Phobos, a sentinel structure that is waiting there for us. Well. I found out, although Soviet cosmonauts had been more outspoken about presence of UFOs than their American counterparts, you know, you can if you listen carefully, you can pick up a lot of interesting stuff, even, you know, from our own astronauts. This was one of them. So we have an interesting case, um, and and, and we, we describe quite a lot in the book because we were able to get our hands on interesting Soviet materials from the Perestroika days, from the 1989 incident with the Phobos mission, and it's all in the book. But what's interesting is that, to keep in mind, that although our space program is not doing quite well, China and Russia joined forces together and are itching to get base back to Phobos in 2011. Oh, wow. Hopefully our economy will, you know, the economy of this planet will sustain it and they will go. I am sure U.S. will be on it, I have no doubts. Just like the United States was very active along with West European countries in the so-called Soviet space program uh, of Phobos because it wasn't really Soviet. It was a joint international effort to reach the moonlet of Mars, to study it, and even to test weapons on its surface, and um, a laser weapon. Well, whoever or whatever is on the face of Phobos did not like it. So, you know, it it ended quite bad. Mars Observer, by the way, carried the same kind of testing, uh, test weapon, uh, you know, with it, and we know what happened to, to Mars Observer. So I'm giving you a lot of information, but this is basically what Russian, ufology has been when i say russian i'm from ukraine proudly so so when i say russian i'm just kind you know compiling together kazakh Soviet, i mean russian ukrainian and so forth yeah because it was a joint effort and you know we don't have time to go into each individual uh, republic or Mm -hmm. area of russia but believe me in the book we have we have shown what's been ha- happening in, in f- remote areas very important areas such as yakutia such as chukotka kamchatka and so forth uh, of russia that very new very few people know about it but what's interesting is that soviet ufo researchers knew from their experience and field studies that ufos and usos are most often cited by military people by pilots who serve in the remote areas, UFOs do not really come to the populous area too much. Areas too much, they do when there is a need, as we will talk about. Yeah, but that's you know that that's what's happening, and that, and we see it in our research too. Um, and it's interesting, and like Siberia, areas of Siberia where you know gigantic objects have been sighted, Central Asia, remote areas, and so forth. There seems to be a purpose in UFOs, just kind of put it all together, you know, through the years of the Soviet Union. And if we can understand purpose of an alien civilization, because in my opinion, this is where they come from. I, But we don't put our opinions, you know, we will let the readers judge. But in my opinion, it is an alien civilization, maybe more than one, most likely more than one, that is operating on the face of this planet. It's interested in the development of maybe an uncontrolled civilization like the soviet union had been and maybe china is now yeah because you know to put it in political terms population doesn't decide what's being done and that's why we had ecological uh mass in the soviet union which will continue for 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 centuries we had military tests that were quite dangerous and i'm sure that you know in the united states we had similar But in the Soviet Union, it was a little bit different. And I'm not saying that the UFOs were a safeguard, but they kept an eye, or eyes that they have (laughs) on the development of Soviet weapons, nuclear tests, and more than that. And once, or once definitely, they had interfered. This happened in Chernobyl in 1986, that we know about. And, uh, you know, I I think there may be more. We'll speak about USOs and what they, what Soviets had found out, and there is another case of possible interference. But when you look at the whole picture, after years of studying all of this, uh, that, you know, I had been doing and Philip, through his uh, information, it's it's a mind-blowing information that comes out when you start putting it all together. But what's interesting is those at the top, they knew, about the presence of UFOs. They were quite certain to an extent that UFOs will not harm them. I think it's it's dangerous knowledge sometimes because basically they knew that they could do whatever they wanted, they meaning the Politburo and Stalin, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, did they have a guarantee that they will not be harmed personally or will not be interfered with? I, 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 I don't have answers. I hope my book Will give answers to those who seek them. I just wanted to make sure, and Philip too, that people see information they never have heard of, information free of, uh, you know, tabloid news, tabloid-like, but 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 more or less facts reported by those who were trained to observe and report: astronomers, military people, scientists. Soviet, uh, you know, every Soviet serviceman had an order to see what had been flying in the sky, write it down, give it to his commanding officer, if it's important enough to be sent to Moscow Uh, and to other areas. This was an unprecedented um, effort done on a national scale, not the only one, because they had also Navy research, and we'll get to it. But that's what we wanted people to know, because today Russia is different from the Soviet Union in that if there is attention paid to UFOs, it's not on that scale. They may not even have enough money. Plus, there is no charismatic government with one central idea as before.
1: Yeah, you jumped the gun a little bit on me here, because I was going to ask for a little bit of a bio background. You know, who is Paul Stonehill? How did you get interested in the UFO phenomenon? Um, I know you're in America now. How'd you end up here in America and all, all that good stuff? You know, give people a little bit of a background on
0: you. Well, I, I basically, I was born in, in Kiev, Ukraine. I was a regular Soviet boy, citizen, I, I, I should say. I've traveled um, to some areas uh, in the Soviet Union. I'm glad, you, you know, Central Asia, uh, Black Sea, uh, you know, areas within the Soviet Union. Not, not, not as much as I would like to, would have liked to, but. I had been interested in this phenomenon, you know, from my early days, I should say, because I had actually met a uh, former Arctic pilot who told me about his sighting of a UFO. Plus, I was interested in collecting information about this, uh, in, uh, you know, to the extent possible. And I, there, are, there were ways to find out about UFOlogy, about paranormal phenomenon, be- because there were always people who went against the grain, and some of them happily were in charge of very interesting publications, such as Technica молодежi, which, you know, sometimes you could find information about UFOs that was not your typical Marxist-Leninist uh, mambo-jumbo. Mm-hmm. And you know they were not afraid to to publish something. Some some got paid, for, you know, in, in the wrong way for, for that. Some lost their jobs, but still you could. And it was a very interesting publication. And I, you know, we had a lot of science was was uh, king in the Soviet Union. And uh, with science came thirst for knowledge. And Soviet uh, UFO enthusiasts and researchers were mostly scientists, and they knew this was this was basically a forbidden subject. Uh, and, and, you know, as, as they come, as they, I knew people in the Soviet Union who I was able to kept in touch with after we were able to leave the Soviet Union under a special program in the early 1970s. I found a way to keep in touch w- w- with some people, and uh, before the end of the Soviet Union, when perestroika was in effect, more information flooded out from the Soviet Union, and most of it was nice, virgin stuff. Meaning without tabloid junk that you can read here, because the Soviet Union was an isolated country. Yeah, and whatever they had studied, and you know, mostly it appeared in uh, in underground publications. But you know, the, it it was let's say pure. Of course, some of it was military tests, uh, you know, mistake, you know, mistaken observations. But but not everything. Yeah, some of my articles I I kept writing in Russian too, and. Uh, Uh, a little bit in Ukrainian, another language that I know, and some of it was published at that time in the Soviet Union, and then I exchanged information, and, you know, that's how it went. Until, I would say, about 1993, when everything crashed, people had no, you know, no free time to to study UFOs. The official programs were done by then, and uh, whoever had been studying UFOs was doing it, you know, at extreme um, hardship, to extreme hardships. But there are some people today who do it, mostly young people, serious, like Mikhail Gerstein, Vadim Chernobrov, and some of them have even organized national and international movements to study paranormal phenomenon and UFOs. Oh, wow. So this was basically my interest. I've traveled to, to some countries around the world because I wanted to test some of my ideas that I had been working on, on ancient civilizations uh, and uh, ancient cultures. And this is what I also write about. Hopefully soon, Fate Magazine will publish my book called Paranormal Mysteries of Eurasia, where I write a little bit more than just about UFOs, but about ancient astronauts and uh, some of these strange pages of, of Russian history and so forth. Okay. So this is where I come from.
2: There
1: you go. Sounds good. Now let's talk about probably the most famous... Uh, Russian UFO case or uh, strange sky anomaly, I guess you could say, and that's the Tunguska event of 1908. Obviously, I figure that you're supremely well-versed in this, and I read a lot of your stuff on it. I found it was interesting in one instance uh, that you talk about sort of like a mysterious uh, research team that investigated Tunguska uh, relatively shortly thereafter. No one really knew who these people were or anything. It makes you wonder if they were Remnants of the actual event or something, but um, tell people about Tunguska and what based on all that you've researched into it What you think went down there in
0: 1908? Tunguska was a very unusual probably, uh, you know, basically earth-shattering in many ways event, but Before even it took place in 1908 there were strange strange happenings throughout the planet in our atmosphere in our, you know to, throughout the world, it's like somebody, like our planet, was waiting for something to happen, and weather had been changing. To put it cynically and plainly, when Tunguska's event took place, whether it was an implosion, explosion, or a shootdown of a huge UFO, we do not know. Mm-hmm. I and Philip, we have presented all possible theories from all possible angles. Uh, was it a meteorite? Was it a uh, bolide? Was it, w- w- was it an implosion? Was it a spaceship that blew up? All this is presented. But what I am interested in, what I, is the idea that's been played out recently, that first of all, there was more than one object. Based on, on, on the collected information ours, and of course those who, who had been in the field and so forth, there were a number of objects, definitely two. One that flew into the atmosphere of our planet, and another that shut it down. And the, the object that shut it down comes from the remote Siberian area of Yakutia, Republic of Saka. They have This is the most diamond-laden place in the world today very remote very hard to reach to and that's how that's how they want to keep it and that's not that good because in the 1920s 1930s they found strange objects which had not been uncovered yet in that area objects so-called cauldrons uh radioactive remnants of metallic craft embedded in the permafrost there are legends that we which of course we list of of the local people that go back for probably more than hundreds of years of strange holes in the ground, laughing abysses it's called and, and you know names like that of of, of uh, w- w- objects that came from the sky when were swallowed by the ground and are there with with metallic objects with dozens of rooms in them and so forth. Oh, boy. The fact is that there is definitely something there. I know that there was an explorer a few years ago who went to this site and who was able to see some of these uh, remnants and fragments and so forth, a Czech explorer. What's interesting is that the legend is that from this hole in the ground, from this abyss in the ground, once every few hundred years, a huge fiery object, or god, whatever they call it, deity, comes out and shoots down the intruders. It probably happened before in the history of our planet, but definitely in 1908. Remember, whatever took place over the Siberian taiga left basically no traces except some biological effects on the trees below, on, on the living organisms, and even on humans. There was a study that in whoever was that more geniuses were born in 1908 than any any year before that or after that. Huh. That's interesting too. Yeah. There was another study conducted by a Russian uh, astrophysicist that said that the most that 1908 was the best time for an object to come from Mars or Venus because the distance between our planets was the shortest in that year. There was more. Now, officially Soviets became interested in this area because of actions of one professor kulik who in 1920s was able to bring an expedition to the site yeah and who did his best to uncover as much as possible and who died a very bad well died a ve- in, in, in a very bad fashion uh, as a war prisoner of german nazi war machine i, I think in 1942 mm-hmm. taking his secrets with him because he had a few what we found out in the subsequent years there were other expeditions. One was on site right then when this event took place. But their diaries do not mention anything with that date. Nothing. And then we found out there was another expedition, maybe a year later, that nobody knew about. Well equipped, came on the site, did their measurements, did their tests, and left.
2: Yeah,
1: that's what I was talking about, yeah.
0: Forty years later, Stalin sends another expedition militarized scientific expedition with different tasks given to you know various scientists on board i think beria was in charge and when beria was in charge his chief of secret police everything was efficient whatever they found out we do not know but let's keep in mind because everything is interconnected you will see in the history of soviet ufology it's it's very interesting i mentioned that stalin once in 1947, I believe, asked Korolev, father of Soviet space science, to give his assessment of the acquired UFO information from the Soviet, uh, from, from the United States. I mean, Soviet intelligence had been very active in the United States, very efficient, stole as much as possible, and brought some of this information to Stalin. Roswell information and related UFO materials. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wish we could just even glance on that file. Yeah. We can't. You know, in 1993, some people tried after the fall of the Soviet Union, but no. No, they don't have it, they say. <laughs> Karalev, he had to remain in Kremlin. He wasn't allowed to leave. He had some uh, translators, interpreters with him, translators. And he had to go through this pile like a few days. He was given a few days he studied everything and his conclusion given to Stalin was that yes, UFOs do exist. No, they do not present any imminent danger to the uh, well-being and safety of the Soviet Union. Stalin told him that this opinion was, sh- his opinion was shared by other Soviet academicians who had been given this materials to study and Korolev was told to go. But Korolev was himself very much interested in all this Tangaska story, and as you will read in the book, he gave money for an expedition in 1950s, his own money, and provided helicopters. Now, you know, a few years go by, and here is Stalin who organizes this secret expedition to the site of Tangaska. and we still don't know it. Like I said, like like many other things in Russia, there's it's still everything is still classified. Yeah. Again, I present. And you know, with Philip as many details in the back uh, in, in the book about this phenomenon, it is by in my opinion one of the most important UFO cases in in the history of our planet because whatever was shut down or imploded or removed from the sky might have done much more danger, I think, had it actually impacted our planet. But it was not allowed
1: to. Interesting. Okay. Obviously, from 1908 to contemporary times, there's just a sheer number of amazing cases that uh, I couldn't even begin to, to know of or even ask you about. So we'll sort of hit on some of them and just some of the trends and stuff as well. I wanted to ask you, you've already sort of talked about it a few times, USOs. I find it fascinating that based on your work, I mean, you've uncovered a lot about USOs, but here in the United States, the USO phenomenon is really Pretty far onto the peripheral of UFO studies, but it sounds like these two go hand in hand over there in the Soviet Union, which is probably the same case here in America. But there's just not the same level of awareness as far as USOs go. So I guess talk a little bit about you know the research you've done on Soviet USOs.
0: Well, you know, again in the United States, uh, former Navy people, you know, they have an oath they have to keep to, and um, they're obliged not to talk about it because I I know of. Uh, I don't know if he's still alive, but uh, in Encino there was a former U.S. admiral who told, not me, but somebody I know, about a few U.S.O. cases. Fascinating, but he couldn't talk about it. Yeah. But of course, of course they knew, and, and we'll, we'll get to it when we speak about a very unusual uh, Soviet research, uh, official research of um, once, at least one type of U.S.O.s. Basically, you have in the Soviet Union, they have a number of remote Lakes and, of course, excuse me, seas, uh, and that uh, U- U- U.S. also have been cited In and and besides that, because of the of the of the um, uh, Cold War and the struggle that had been going on, there are uh, actually warfare between the United States, NATO, and the Soviet Union. Soviet submarines had, you know, had to to be efficient, quick, and uh, to be present in most of the oceans of our planet Uh and because of that even before the 1978 uh, initiation of the official program to study ufos and usos naval people the people of the soviet russian navy had been studying usos because they had to deal with them they mostly people in the submarines and, you know, in the, in the submarine flotillas and so forth, had observed gigantic submarine-like objects, very deep, where they could not reach. And they had to report it. Or when they would surface, let's say, in the area, say, uh, you know, South Georgia Island, one of the most interesting British territories, yeah uh, not far from the Falklands, they would see unusual mushroom-like or donut-like gigantic objects in the sky. I mean, that's not Soviet waters, but observed by Soviet submarines. I mean, I go through a, a number of cases in, in uh, you know, like uh, Mediterranean, Red Sea, and other areas, but what has been sighted in Soviet waters, we know a little bit more about. And, you know, the more we find out, the more fascinating it becomes. Again, remote areas, but, but you know, areas that you can put your basically hands-on because many reports have been coming from there for example the far east the sea of ahotsk areas around kamchatka northern russia of course the arctic areas ever present ufos and usos you know like an object that shut down from you know from under the ice uh, much faster much powerful than any missile would you know cigar-shaped object and Soviet Navy commanders would register it. Or they had cases when they were chased by submarines or submarine-like objects who repeated every movement and every maneuver that the Soviet Union, Soviet subs would do. And it got, it got commanders very nervous. So they kept asking. They kept writing down the reports so nobody would say that they were insane. They would get <laughs> yeah. confirmation from other crew members. This happened. We will list it. And then they would um, send it on to to, to central uh, collecting station or to, to you know to the headquarters. Now, Russian Navy and Soviet Navy had been very advanced in 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 comparison to other uh, armed branches. Not to put them down, but to say that the people who had served there were very intelligent, brave people who uh, knew how to collect information, how to study it, and how not to sh- how not to be uh afraid of the communist uh, apparatus of course to an extent you know if they were dissidents they would pay fa- pay for it but there was a certain freedom that they had like they sheltered a person that we mentioned quite a lot in our books and will be also he had will have his own chapter in our U.S.O. book vladimir He he's still alive he's very he's about 77 78 years old now one of the most interesting personalities in the Soviet UFO field research, who became interested in this whole subject when he read about the Bermuda Triangle, the only publication he was able to find in Russian in in Soviet libraries, because UFOs were a forbidden subject. You couldn't even say UFO in many cases. couldn't even write it down. They preferred anomalous aerial phenomena, or something like that. Now, he served aboard Soviet submarines. He graduated from a prestigious naval college and he had good friends who sheltered him when the communists would fire him when communist you know party functionaries uh you know who who had as much brains as as, as some of our local debunkers you know who didn't want to hear about ufos they would harass him say you know you're not to read any more lectures you're not to bother people with this nonsense and he lost one or two jobs. His Navy buddies would give him a job in the Navy, uh, working for the Navy, writing a monograph about UFOs in the water, in the, in, in the Soviet seas. I mean, he, this is the best he could dream about. Yeah. And he did good work. Plus, he was persistent. He was the one that wrote actual <clears throat> words, actual language of the instruction given to the armed forces in 1978 to collect information about UFOs and USOs. Because prior to that, from about 1976, he had been doing the same for his friends in the Navy, who had taken it upon him themselves to give <clears throat> their own instructions to um, various commanders of Soviet uh, you know, military vessels and tell, telling them, you gotta collect what's going on. I mean, there was a case in 76 where a number, I believe it was a number of nine UFOs came to a secret Soviet installation, um, a submarine base, floating submarine base, and basically for about 18 minutes they were, you know, flying above the deck of the submarine, of the submarine base, you know, scaring the people below, if not scaring them, making them interested what what's going on. Yeah, <clears throat> and so this was one of the most interesting incidents, of course. Uh, people in charge of the Soviet Navy, like Admiral Gershkov, who had built up it into the, you know, world-class Navy, they wanted to know what's going on. So, a number of groups, a number of research groups consisting of military, uh, nav- navy, uh, military scientists, had been created. It, I would say in about mid 1970s. Okay. The reason for this was this among unusual USOs that had been sighted in the Soviet and international waters, there was one group that really bothered the Soviet Union. The Russian name for them is kvakery, meaning those who croak make frog-like noises. Yeah. These were gigantic objects that had followed Soviet submarines, especially in the areas of the Atlantic Ocean and in NATO-controlled areas. So the Soviets definitely thought that they had met a new American technology, submarine tracking technology, which was not so. As they found out during the perestroika years when they started started fraternization with NATO people, and either side was surprised to find out that whatever was following the submarines was not an invention, you know, of that nation. They were very unusual, those... Uh, quackery and i go in big detail about it in ufo case files of russia and in some other books and more will be in the uso book because uh we've collected as much as possible in the present knowledge available to, to, to to russians and it's still a secret research program because it existed for about let's say 10 years it was suddenly shut down in 1985 not because Clockery had disappeared, there was some other reason, interesting reason, and we'll get to it, because, I mean, those who had participated in this program never knew what happened. They were quite upset, because it, it was an interesting research area. Most did not believe they dealt with alien technology or civilization from, you know, down below. Yeah. But, you know, was it an unusual animal? Was it an unusual technical invention? They wanted to know. And uh, this scientific uh, research groups went from one flotilla to another because this object had been sighted also not too far away from the Philippines and the Pacific Ocean and other areas. And this, so this was a directed research staffed by very intelligent people. The end result, we don't know what's going on. If this research, research continues, I, we have no way to find out. Yeah. But... What I wanted to bring forth uh, is that last year, reports, rumors had been disseminated through the media that Russians had been declassifying their UFO, USO files. Yeah. And this is not so. I don't know who is putting it forward. <laughs> it's not the Russian government. Because right. on July 30th of 2009, a uh, representative from the main staff of the Russian Navy came with an explanation that they had never encountered any USOs. Whatever they encountered was like floating junk or garbage or schools of fish, which, you know, we, we were used to such explanations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One year before, the head of the Northern Fleet Intelligence Center came out with another announcement, a bit interesting announcement. He said that they, the Russians, have records of 15,000 strange noises. And that, that goes to the quackery phenomenon because of the mm-hmm. noises that they made. But they cannot reveal them because if they do, it would show the adversary or you know anybody else the uh, itineraries, the roots of Soviet submarines and where they operate, of Russian submarines. So I can quite understand that. But whatever your listeners hear or so forth, do not believe. Unfortunately, Unlike Britain or England or maybe Brazil, right now another important area of USO, UFO research, there is no, you know, any freeing up of information in Russia. Yeah. And I don't think in the present political atmosphere of Russia it will happen. Again, they can't because if we start finding out, if people in the West start finding out about what's been going on in the Arctic, it will give information to the adversaries or, or let's say, competitors that the Russians have.
1: Interesting. Now, I heard an interview with you uh, rather recently where you talked about Lake Baikal and uh, the humanoid stories Mm -hmm. that sort of came from Lake Baikal. Can you talk a little bit about that and, uh, you know, share that information with listeners uh, who are unfamiliar with this uh, very mysterious lake there over in Russia?
0: You know, local people had uh, legends for, 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 for centuries about... Uh, you know, the strange uh, castle at the bottom of Lake Baikal and the ruler of the universe who lives there. <laughs> well, it's it, people from uh, Buriatia, this is the area of Russia, where the nomads and former nomads live and where the lake is located, too. It's, I don't know if it's the ruler of the universe or you, uh, of the, that lives down there, but definitely <laughs> it, uh, rulers of the Soviet Union could not do much. Um, it wasn't Maybe they were not aware of an action, local military action, in 1982 when humanoids had been sighted. Humanoid like creatures had been sighted at the bottom of the Lake Baikal, near the bottom, doing what they need to do, doing some work, maybe construction work. And a local commander decided to capture them, and a number of Soviet frogmen died as a result. They were thrown out from the bottom of the lake. And uh, died because you no know, decompression was not taking place, and um, other commanders, uh, a general among them, had to fly to other deep water lakes in the Soviet Union, such as Lake Issykul, and let people know that local people know don't try it. You see them, let them be, don't touch them. Uh, this story uh, was became became uh, prominent after a former Soviet um, officer, Mark Steinberg wrote about it in 1992. I found uh, confirmation about it in other areas. Uh, you know, other people had heard about it. There was actually an, um, a witness, a major Soviet writer, who had been in the area a few years later and was told by a local fishermen basically almost the same story. And then uh, in, in the research that we have, we had collected information about another case in 1982 that had involved similar... Uh, beings that had been sighted through the program that I told you about, through the Setka program. A report was sent to, you know, upstairs, so to say, about uh, this strange creature that was sighted by uh, craft that landed in, in another strategic area of Russia, which is well known for UFO sightings. Then we have some reports from the Russian counterintelligence, Navy counterintelligence about Far East, and we keep keep we keep you know collecting information. We have a little bit more, and um, you, you, what what you see is description of beings that can operate and uh, you know at the levels at the depths that we, we can't even dream about without using any breeding apparatuses, and uh, nine foot tall beings, and uh, they have been seen in other parts of this of, of the Soviet Union. It's interesting that as we do that we also start collecting information from ancient India about same beings very similar beings and we, we, this will be in our USO book because we start seeing patterns where they belong because as many people know also in ancient Shumer, that Zachariah Sitchin had been writing about in Babylonia there have been legends of the semi-fish, semi-human beings that came out and brought knowledge and gave knowledge to the uh, local people. And so this is all it ties in very interesting. But because we had trained 20th century military observers, we can get a little bit more. Yeah, And we start bringing other information into the books based on that incident. For example, local military people such as Steinberg were able to find out about a report that had been disseminated, given in the engineering forces of the soviet union about observations of strange objects gigantic disc-like objects disc-shaped objects that would come out uh from the bodies of deep water lakes or strange lakes in and out and we we mentioned lake serez among other you know areas like a lake in kamchatka and in chukotka that people can read about in the book i don't have time to get to it but <laughs> lake serez is an area in the Central Asia, in the Premier Mountains, that had been artificially created because of an earthquake. Well, if another earthquake shakes it, very much a huge volume of water will descend on the, you know, down the mountain and destroy major parts of Afghanistan and a few other uh, countries in the area. So Soviet observers, though who had, those who had spied for... US SDI satellites and other space technology, they were located in not too far from this lake and they were able to see by chance this disk, huge disks coming in and out. And here I touch up again upon the ecological, let's say, uh, angle to all the USO UFO presence of over the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. We, it, we 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 know and we present in the book the incident over Chernobyl when a uh, UFO allegedly helped diminish attenuate uh, effects of the explosion nuclear explosion. Here we have a lake that is basically an ecological disaster to you know that can happen at any time.
2: Yeah. You, and you
0: know about all the earthquakes that take place now on mm-hmm. the face of our planet. Yeah, are UFOs or USOs interested? in studying this lake, or are they doing something to prop it up, to keep it safe? There have been reports of UFOs to such formerly unavailable, uh, you know, hard-to-reach or out of, uh, or, or forbidden areas such as, you know, Ural secret scientific towns in the Ural Mountains, where they had been doing... Milita- military tests, maybe small nuclear explosions, biological uh, weapons uh, development. We don't even know the extent of the of the um, you know uh, yeah. of the research that the Soviets had been doing. But UFOs apparently knew quite a lot. I always mention in my interviews. There's a very famous case of 1973 when a top secret Soviet scientific town, I mean, Americans knew about it, but they still like to keep it, you know, to call it top secret because regular Soviet citizens couldn't get to it, had been testing within the walls of an institution there, they had been testing uh, some super, uh, you know, a top secret weapon. I, I, it, the name is in the book. I don't recall it. Yeah. The point is not that. The point is that a huge UFO came over and hovered over this institution Gathering information, doing what it needs to do. So, you know, frightened scientists started calling Moscow, saying what's going on. And and Moscow uh, told them uh, something that you hear about, I guess, uh, now, Gulf of Mexico. We are in control. <laughs> yeah. But Moscow yeah. was not in control. You know, Mo- no way. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and this happened before. There was an incident. You know, it, it, we can laugh about it and so forth, but there was an incident when very few people laughed in also 1982. Nice year. You will see in the book. It's a very interesting year. So many things happened in that year um, with UFO activity over the Soviet Union. I'm sure in other countries too, but I can only speak about the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Well, in my country of birth, Ukraine, um, it, it was full of, you know, Soviet secret tests and missile silos and all that, because it was so close to uh, Western Europe, yeah. if you look at it. Um, in a small village in Ukraine, there was a military uh, a silo the containing uh, strategic um, intercontinental nuclear missiles, where for 15 minutes, when a huge UFO object, I mean a huge one, I think 900 meters, was the diameter that was mentioned when it appeared over the silo? Uh, the silo, people on the ground lost control over the uh, silos, and and the initiation started. You know when you the launch initiation sequence was going on. That's the it could only be sent from Moscow. Yeah, meaning if the you know missiles would fly to the United States, towards the United States war would break out. Exactly. For 15 minutes, nobody had control over the situation. This was on an international scale, if you think about it. <clears throat> there were other instances, too. There were instances when Soviet aircraft was lost after they had tried to shoot down UFOs of In 1953, 1976, some we mentioned quite a lot about some mysterious cases that took place in the 1960s. In a very interesting area. Uh, especially today, in the area of Iran-Iraq borders with the Soviet Central Asia, mm-hmm. quite many, quite interesting things had taken place, even during the Iran-Iraq war. The Soviets were quite nervous, uh, you know, when they see a gigantic UFO, disc-shaped UFO over their secret uh, military location in Central Asia. A local commander loses his cool, he shoots at it, he, he loses a few aircraft. He gets punished for that. And another order, another one goes to the military, uh, you know, armed forces saying, do not shoot. <laughs> you are not to shoot at them. Let them be. Wow. And, you know, again, military people were the best to see it. I stress those trained researchers because I know that the bunkers in the United States and other uh, places. Uh, try to say, well, those who see UFOs are, you know, abnormal abnormal mental mental cases or others. It's not so. I think I could say that most of the debunkers are abnormal mental cases because, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I really don't uh, shy away because they don't shy away trying to shut me down. Exactly, and other yeah. You know, you, you, you had trained people who would say, you know, let's say we, we, we say 95%. Of all UFO observed UFOs were of explainable phenomenon,
2: mm-hmm. either
0: military tests or you know natural phenomena that we can explain today. Five percent they have to grant they can't. If the Soviet Academy of Science said five percent, military people would say ten percent. One of them, like Colonel Ploxin, who had been doing this a lot of the Sietka research, actually going through the uh, uh, information that had obtained from throughout the Soviet Union, I believe he said over 1,000 cases could not be explained away. Wow. You know, 1,000 credible cases. That's amazing. So this is what's going on. And again, people who had seen it, many of them were not afraid. Some of them had a little bit more leverage. In some instances of Soviet history, which is, is very convoluted, history of ufology and the whole nation like in 1967 for some reason you could write more about ufos and, and, and newspapers took the chance especially in the baltics where they had um interviewed astronomers who had reported objects they had seen in the sky and they knew these objects were no uh you know ball lightning or soviet satellites they knew they knew enough or and and, and and you know, speaking about 1967, I always tell in my interviews was a fantastic year for the for, for the Soviet ufology because another thing took place that you know you could not have in the United States. China will get to later if we have time, but definitely not in the United States, France, or any other Western democratic nation. I, I, I I'm still amazed. A group of Soviet UFO researchers. Which such prominent personality as Felix Ziegel, himself a scientist, got together with their friends and colleagues in the Soviet Armed Forces, and because of the prevalence of UFO information and cases in their hands, they decided to create quite legally a popular, I don't want to say civic, but civilian organization to study UFOs. They found... uh, place where they could have their meetings under the auspices of, an, of a Soviet society to uh, protect uh, aviation, something like that. Uh, but the point is, military people extended their hands, and not, you know, small-scale small, uh, uh, small scale people, generals and so forth, and said, let's do it together. Yeah, You know, guys, we'll, we'll help you more. 300 people, scientists and military uh, commanders, had their first meeting of this organization, And then then they went to the Soviet television and appealed to the general population, saying, we are here to study UFOs. I think they even said UFOs. They were not shying away. And we need your help. And here's where you send information. Of course, information, you know, flooded.
1: Yeah. Now, let me jump in here. Now, what what sort of precipitated that? Because it sounds like, you know, it was pretty, you know. That time? Yeah. how, how How was that even
0: allowed? There had been waves of UFO sightings in the 1960s, and we we'll list many of them in the book. But besides that, keep in mind, the Soviets, you know, there was such such uh, full-scale secrecy, but a lot of the, even military people, did not know about space, I'm, I'm sorry, space vehicles being designed and tested, and about missile testing. Yeah. So, we need to understand the fear of the Soviet government that those who study UFOs would uncover, and they did, a number of secret military tests. Now, Americans were not so naive. They knew about most of the tests anyway because U.S. intelligence had been present in the Soviet Union spying and collecting on UFOlogists and collecting information about UFO sightings. And that's in the book. We have a section on CIA and KGB. Now, Soviets were afraid that you know, this ufologist will uncover something and bring forth. But you had an interesting dilemma. Yes, UFO UFO researchers had, they suspected that everything they see in the sky is not UFOs un- unidentified. Yeah. But at the same time, whenever those tests took place, in many of the cases, you had presence of real UFOs. They had been looking at what's going on. <laughs> yeah. They had been present over Soviet space, ports like um Semipalatinsk uh, or Prisetsk. So this whatever this is what happened before and you know but there was so much information that and military people they wanted to know too at that time. But this organization lasted for about a month. After a month without any explanation everything was shut down and basically no more research but people were persistent some Even military engineers would write letters to Kosygin, he was a Soviet leader at the time, and others saying, we got to go ahead and continue. But everything was kind of slow until 1978, when the Sietka program came. Mm -hmm. And the impetus for the Sietka program was the so-called case um, uh, uh, over Karelia, uh, um, Petrozavodsk UFO, which... What happened was a very interesting and complicated phenomenon, a testing of a Soviet satellite,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: a failed test of a Soviet missile, and presence of numerous UFOs in the area, at all at the same time. So given this, the people at the very top gave orders to the Military Industrial Commission which is the, was like the owner of all Soviet science, so to say, and only responded to the Politburo, to the Soviet leaders, they gave them instructions to start UFO research. If whatever happened over Petty I believe on September 20th, 1977, if the gigantic jellyfish that had been sighted over the city, if it was only a result of a Soviet military test or... A launch of the satellite why would they need to create a secret program yeah so there was something else and this is what took place a research that had lasted for 13 years and we still don't know the end result there had been field expeditions i have a, a, a few documents my you know colleagues in russia have few. we shared them and very brief and um uh, Capable American journalist, whose name is George Knapp, uh-huh. and who is one of the um, uh, people at Coast to Coast Radio now. Yep. He brought 400 documents pertaining to this program from the Thread Research portion of it in 1993. Wow. But that's all about. It. That's all we know now.
2: Why are you here? Why am I here? Why are you here? Why is anybody here? I think it was
0: John Paul Sartre who once said, How do you spell Sartre? Ow! And let that be a lesson to you. Every minute you don't tell us why you're here, I cut off a finger. Mine or yours? Yours.
1: Damn! You're listening to
2: Banal of America Audio.
0: Ow! Why are you still hitting me? He's going to cut my fingers off.
2: You have 30 seconds. You're not going to start humming the theme to Jeopardy, are you? We start with a little one.
0: All right. All right, I'm an American agent. And? And, uh, and, and uh, they, they sent me here to, to to assassinate your premier. I knew it. Fay up,
1: Comrade. Now, you've, you've spoken of just the sheer litany of qualified uh, witnesses to these various UFO events. Let's talk a little bit about the cosmonauts, because it sounds like they are a little more free to talk about what they've seen uh, as opposed to American astronauts. And I also... I don't want to forget to ask you, because I'd heard a previous interview with you a long time ago where you talked about one of the cosmonauts on the space station sort of hearing voices, and I've heard other people say that, you know, he was going mad or something like that, but that wasn't the impression I got from the interview that I heard with you. So make sure, uh, if you can, to touch on that story, because I found that to be chilling.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, if if they had been mad... When they came, I mean, I, again, not all of them wanted to talk, but, but enough of, of the cosmonauts shared their information and were not afraid to. And some of them, such as Pavel Popovich, who died recently, uh, the first cosmonaut of Ukraine, and just a very nice person mm-hmm. who helped uh, to promote Soviet UFO Research when it wasn't uh, fashionable to do so, and, and you know he did everything to help Vladimir Ryzhajin and a few others, and who historically had been involved even with portions of the Siatka program, and I mean it's it's it, again it's it's all interconnected. Yeah. Well, somebody like him, not long ago Philip and I we put together an article that had been translated in a number of year languages. I published it in Pravda too, uh, the the famous uh, you know. Former Soviet newspaper and a few, of course, other areas uh, to Western Europe and here in the United States because we wanted people to know uh, a larger um, version of Popovich's information is in the U will be in the U S O book when when it gets published ho- soon I hope but basically this cosmonaut one of the first original Soviet cosmonauts, the team that got, was in- included Gagarin and Tereshkova and others. Uh-huh some of them who, who died or perished, brave people. Well, he came out with information about underwater bases that he knew about, you know, on the face of our planet, which is very interesting because it coincides with what we found out some other through some other research. Well, people like him were not afraid to mention UFOs, even in the Soviet times, even in the 19, early 1980s. There were uh, reports of, of UFOs He had obtained information Through his work In this commission for the study of anomalous phenomena An offshoot of the SETCA program of, of He was like a co-chairman there yeah. He reported There were others There were people like um, uh, Cosmonaut Khrunov Who said he believes in the presence of UFOs There, there, there were people uh, That uh, uh, Not a cosmonaut but, but one of those who, who worked with them And uh, former wife of uh, Pavel Popovich, Marina Popovich, who knew all the cosmonauts, who gave me many, many years ago a photograph of the Phobos, of the object that shot, destroyed Phobos. They would even reveal their information in interviews with such progressive, put it in a nice way, magazines like Technica Moldejozhi, and reveal that what they had seen in the sky, like gigantic letters over Mongolia, how can it be explained? They had seen... Letters in the sky, strange silvery clouds, which we go through quite a lot in our book because that's a very unusual phenomenon. Yeah. Also, uh, shapes in the, in, in the atmosphere of the Earth that cannot be explained. Or, I'll never forget, uh, one of the cosmonauts mentioned observation of two gigantic waves rising up on in the, the ocean and crashing into each other. Indian Ocean. Nobody on Earth had seen anything like that. Yeah. And uh, there was another one, not everything they could reveal, because remember, there were Soviet citizens. There was a case, uh, one of the cosmonauts had, she mentioned it, Svetlana Bystritska, I believe. I don't, I can't recall the name right now, but she mentioned the incident when they had angels who appeared aboard their station. Now, let's not be naive, not real angels angels, but angelic-like beings. all yeah. oh, they had description, uh, you know, vocabulary to describe these strange objects as who had interacted with them. And they kept it secret because if they would reveal this to, to the people down below in the Space Control Center, they would definitely be considered insane. But they didn't. Now, whispers in space is a very interesting phenomenon that had been reported by some cosmonauts who like to keep their names secrets, many of them, up till now, because what had happened in space is like somebody would speak, they would hear voices in their heads, basically telling them, bottom line, revealing some very personal information about them that only, you know, that person would know about, and telling them that you have come to to outer space too soon. You are not ready to be here yet. I will go through, through a little bit more information in the book. So definitely, cosmonauts had observed um, a lot, and even those cosmonauts who, like Alexei Leonov, uh, that's another article we published in 1989, sorry, in two thousand nine with Philip, because he's a, he's still alive, and uh, I wish him, you know, to live many years. He's another brave Russian cosmonaut who doesn't believe in UFOs and UFOs, but and 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 to the he and he even presented his views back in 1970 when our uh, defense intelligence agency was spying on him when he was speaking in Japan, and he presented his views on UFOs and even claimed that no uh, no Soviet uh, astron- uh, sorry, astronomers ever see- seen any, although he knew differently. But he had to say what he had to say. Yeah. In, his, in his recent interviews to Russian media, he revealed knowledge of so-called ancient astronaut visitations to, to an extent that Popovich did too. So I'm start, I start thinking, where is the source of their information? Not just the books available on the market, because these guys know more. So they are getting something. They're, it's, they're hinting at something or, it, or speaking quite openly about facts of ancient visitations upon the you know, face of this planet, all this data that cannot be denied. Now, Leonov is very cautious. He does not, he says he doesn't believe in UFOs, but he believes based on the information he has in ancient astronauts. Popovich did not, was was outspoken. He was not afraid. I mean, what could they do to him at the end? I mean, he was a, well, uh, they couldn't kill him. They couldn't, nor was there a reason to, because with all the... um, in, the, in the, all the dark times of, of the Soviet UFO history, he nevertheless was right in the middle, bringing information. He was the one who, in 1991, received the KGB information files, so-called the blue file on UFOs, or KGB revealed information that had been given to them because they, they, they claimed they never were interested in UFOs per se. And... You know, there are many conflicting stories. Of course, KGB would be interested in any paranormal phenomenon. But they had studied it under the, I think, the uh, third directorate, uh, uh, 10th section, the the section that was responsible for the safeguarding of Soviet Soviet industry, um, secret strategic industry. So we can gather from that that UFOs were hovering over this, Soviet secret strategic industry site, and KGB had to know. So they gave 124 pages to Popovich for f- further dissemination. And they said that they were glad to get this headache out of their hands because this was not their primary primary research. It's interesting because we have more information about, about those people in the KGB who were very active in studying UFOs, but... Popovich, what I want to get back to is this cosmonaut Popovich was the one that was active. He also was trying to help people like Dr. Haynes in the United States, who, a former NASA scientist, psychologist, who very much was very much active in the early years, uh, 1990s, trying to create a bridge between Soviet and, for the, and then Russian and American UFO researchers, serious ones, to help joint research. Nothing came from it, unfortunately. I helped him to the extent I could. There are very capable people in the former Soviet Union who could do it, but the time was not right. Now, Popovich was trying to help, and the full full story is in the book, but Popovich was trying to help obtain information from different Russian security agencies about Oswald documents, and all we found out is that they do not have them. They didn't say they never had them. They say don't, they don't have them now. <laughs> Whether they were sent to the United States for exchange, for joint operational review, it's quite possible. It's one of the ideas that I uh, strongly, be- personally believe that there is with all the um, wh- what should I say with all the uh, uh, I don't want to say um, in you know fighting between the two countries. Let's not put. With the um, competition and, uh, pers- and and research dedicated to, to to this or that nation that you know they safeguard, I think at the top level they definitely have exchange of information. I'm sure, like intelligence, they have to.
2: Yeah, because if they possess yeah. all
0: yeah. this knowledge, they, they simply have to. But now we know, and you know I'm going around you know cosmonauts and space, but it's all interconnected. We know that in 1989, there was a joint research to study Mars. Something keeps our leaders so much interested in getting, in, in, in this mission to get to Mars, you know, it's it's incredible. Not to Venus, not to, 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 to uh, well, Mercury is out of question, not even to the Moon, but to Mars. Because they know something is out there. Yeah. And, you know, people like Buzz Aldrin sometimes, you know, Aldrin, he reveals information. Uh, people in the Soviet I found out that some scientists in the Soviet Union were, were more outspoken, like I mentioned, and even cosmonauts. So definitely, you know, it's it's like fragments of a hole that is being hidden from us. Exactly. But apparently somebody on this planet has that knowledge.
1: Absolutely, yeah, that seems to be the case. And you and me and the listeners and everybody else are trying to play catch up with these people that do have the information. Now I was going to ask you about one more incident over there in Russia. Obviously, there's just a myriad of incidents, and I'm sure there's many, many, many of them that are discussed in the book. Let's talk about the Voronezh incident, which is pretty well known here in the United States. Talk about that, 1989.
0: Voronezh was... It became known because, remember, 1989 was the year when UFO... I'll, I'll tell UFO had ceased to be censorship object. The censorship was the story. The chains of censorship were taken over from the UFO subject and there was a wave of UFO uh, visitations taking place in the Soviet Union. Not exclusively, but over the Soviet Union. I don't know what what interest they had at the time. Was it to see a huge civilization come? to an end, because that's what happened. Soviet civilization basically ceased to exist, and something else came in its, in its place. Perfect historical observation, but there were many reports. Voronish, the case is interesting because, yes, there were some boys who reported strange beings that landed uh, in, in the, in the Yuzhny Park area of that um, of, the, of the city. Uh, one of the beings allegedly you know, disappeared and was trying to, to shoot the boy, disappeared with him and appeared. It's it's an interesting case, but what I want to say is the area itself, especially a little bit away from Ch- uh, Voronezh, is a strat- is is interesting because it happens to be a strategic and secret area of Soviet aircraft development and test flights. Much more interesting than the Voronezh case were incidents that took place over the uh, uh hub, or so-called, you know, aircraft training areas, to the extent that UFOs had interfered with flights of Soviet experimental jets. And in a number of cases, they caused uh, breakdowns of so of this military jet, secret jets, to the extent that the commander of the airport basically appealed to the official Sietka research, asking, guys, you help me, I don't want to be responsible for my aircraft lost because of UFOs over them and near them. Yeah. This was also the you know, the, an area where Kloxin, you know, one of the one of the most active people in the military side of the research, uh, mentioned a case, it's in the book, of a strange black cloud that had appeared over this area not far from Voronish, I think in nineteen seventy four and soviet aircraft tried to study what was inside and they basically lost all control once they entered the cloud this was one of the cases that could not be explained away it was inexplicable to the end one of those mysterious cases again this is around Voronezh. there is a city there is a very interesting and unusual nuclear soviet nuclear power station around that city that had attracted uh, attention of ufos uh, for years so for Americans, Voronish is and and others became uh, you know a battle cry because this was one of the first Soviet open UFO cases reported. Yeah, and I you know yes, it's interesting. I kind of wish there were a little bit a few more uh, eyewitnesses, not just the kids, but if, but but even the kids hadn't you know revealed much more information than uh, than was previously available in the Soviet Union, and they couldn't get such information from tabloids today russia is all russia is full of tabloids so you know if people report small gray-like creatures maybe it's because they read about them in russian translations of american um of, of, of american ufo cases yeah not at that time and that's what makes it so interesting because the information that was what came within like four years after 1989 is amazing and open our eyes to a number of cases and on you know what has been happening before too. I keep telling people and Monchegorsk 1987, two years before Voronish it's in the book. I urge people to read it because we also have an excellent illustration that was done by military researchers and smuggled out. Of the object, small shuttle-like object that the Soviets got their hands on in the, again, Karelia. Karelia, that's a a very interesting area in the northern Russia, not far from St. Petersburg. UFO had been reported for ages, especially also during the Soviet times. Well, that's where this object was found. Not too many details on how it happened, but there is enough. Kept in a secret storage place. And disappeared from this storage place after a while, but not before it had been studied by some uh, military researchers from this program I mentioned and others. Fascinating. Yeah. This was a small-scale shuttle-like object that was built with very unusual things inside, built for not for humans but for much smaller creatures. Huh. That Gorbachev knew about it. I wish he would reveal more information because he had to change his itinerary because of this object. He was in the Kola Peninsula, and allegedly he went to see it.
2: Interesting. Uh, and, and, wow.
0: Uh, you know, that that's that's one case. Now, Dalny Gorsk, I, 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 you know, we put quite a lot of information about this case that took place in 1986 in, in the Far East. Um, we present all kinds of angles on this story. Personally, I don't believe it was a UFO. I think it was a a uh, failure uh, of a Soviet sec- top secret uh, satellite, a new techno- te- technological development. But what I cannot deny, nor do I want to, is the visitation by UFOs over that area just like a year later. Maybe it was a coincidence, but you had a whole school of UFOs, so to, so to say, of different diameters, different shapes that came to visit that area not too far away and was reported in good detail by Soviet policemen, by again naval people, naval personnel, by local people. So you know, we, we try to present names like Kamchatka, Chukotka, uh, Yakutia. They are in the book.
1: Are these who are these people? Europe Famous countries. UFO researchers?
0: No, areas of Russia. Oh. <laughs> remote it's okay. You know, remote areas of Russia, the taiga, Siberian taiga. You know. Very hard to reach areas, but that's where UFOs were sighted of. 1953, when I have a chance to compare cases, there were were cases in 1953 very unusual that took place in other parts of our planet, like even uh, Brazil, but I know what happened in 1953 over the area of Taiga. Yeah. And a gigantic cylindrical object that had been reported by a former Gulag prisoner, still prisoner at the time, a scientist who was able to study it as much as he could, but he almost died in the process because of the effect of this object over him and others down below. This was an object that the Soviets tried to shoot down. This was not long after Stalin died. So there was no... Nobody was in real control over Russia at the time, and somebody gave orders to shoot at that object. And as a result, they also lost aircraft and missiles and... But a very similar object was sighted, let's see, maybe 26 years later, or by so by Soviet Pacific Fleet Navy intelligence over remote areas of the Pacific Ocean, same cylindrical gigantic mothership that separated into smaller UFOs that would, you know, fly about like bees, collect information, go underwater, come up and go- and then reunite with the body of the mothership. Incredible, almost similar description, and you will see a lot of it. Um, before we end, I should do some. The UFO case files of Russia, you can find it on the Healing of Atlantis website, or uh, I think Amazon has it now. What I like about this work, that we I'm very proud of the work we put together, it's an outline, because we try to present cases that go back to ancient areas of what today is known as Russia or Ukraine. Very interesting uh, report, and some of them, put together by knowledgeable local observers. We go to the uh, um, Middle Ages, to the 19th century, which was a very interesting time, Uh, and early nine years of the 20th century, that had been a party to a large number of visitations and observations of objects over Russia. For some reason, the year of 1892 is very famous. We'll see that, too, in the book. And we had been able to obtain some information from the Soviet, from the Russian secret police files uh, of, you know, Russia. It's in the book. And um, we we don't have a lot from, you know, going back to 1920s. But what we do have, and it's in the part that deals with KGB and CIA, is the early Soviet KGB research of paranormal phenomena and UFOs and what Stalin did with those in the KGB who was active in this research. And again, areas like Tibet will be mentioned and Himalayas and so forth, areas that are still of great interest to us.
1: Now, I'm trying to wrap my head around a little bit sort of the history of these UFO studies in Soviet Union. We've talked about the 67 group and their request for uh, UFO reports. And then, of course, we've talked about the Sietka MO and Sietka AS programs that went from 78 to 1990. So then from 1990, for the last 20 years, what's been going on over there in Russia as far as you know UFO studies? Is it pretty much like a citizen-based situation now?
0: Yes. Because I I, I would not, first of all, not to be naive, I am sure that with the enhancement of the Russian Navy and armed forces, they will pay attention to UFOs. Mm. But if there had been any um, creation, uh, any official government program for UFO studies, we don't know about it. I mean, the military. It's not, I, we, we get daily information from Russia, and, and, and people are quite outspoken in Russia. It's not the same old Soviet Union. Uh, it's just that there are there are not that many people who study UFOs today. It's a different country, different interests, but there are active young people, let's say, you know, younger than 40, who are in this research. Many of them have, uh, science, you know, uh, academic education. People like Chernobrovka, like Mugerstain, uh to name the two most in- prevalent researchers who exchange information. And because of the Internet, we get a lot. Yeah. Uh, on a daily basis. There are some research that goes on in Latvia and um, throughout Russia and beyond through the efforts of the Kosmopoysk, which can be translated as space research, roughly in Russian, outer space research organization uh, headed by Vadim Chernobrov, uh, former scientist uh, and uh, one of the active UFO researchers in the, so- in the former Soviet Union and now. And these guys have branches to different towns, different cities. They exchange information, bring it up. In Ukraine, there is quite an active UFO research that goes on, but it's all it exists basically, basically, you know, because of the funds they are able to collect or with their own funds. Yeah. So there is no, no no government subsidy, and this is in direct contradiction to China. Whatever happens in the United States, I don't have to explain you. You know what's going on. Mm-hmm. China is completely different from us and from Russia. Because in China, as far as I know, there are hundreds of thousands of UFO researchers helped and uh, provided for by Chinese government. There is no nonsense. You know, I'm a scientist. I, I can't reveal that my, my belief in UFOs. Otherwise, I'm going to get canned. Or, you know, no, UFOs don't exist because it's too inconvenient to prove their presence and I can lose <laughs> my job at the university. No. Yeah. No, they have governmental research entities. They keep it to themselves. Um, most of my information that I have been able to obtain is through Russian sources who also keep an eye on Chinese developments, not through, you know, just translations of Chinese articles. No, no. No, it's, it's through Russian sources. But also they're limited in what they know. I know that... Back in late 1980s, there was a joint research between uh, not not a wide research, but between Chinese and Russian uh, ufologists in the Far East. I don't think it had continued much often. I think the Chinese would collect as much information as they need through other means and sources, but they would keep it to themselves. But I've collected enough to publish an article in Fate magazine. Uh, I think back in 2007 before the earthquake, about the si- Sichuan province, very interesting place, not too far from Tibet, and, you know, ancient uh, history and you know, reports of UFOs and modern. And if, if the future earthquake attracted UFOs to that area, who knows, because they were, had been quite active there. But that's only one of Chinese provinces. And I, I try to put information in, in the books that we write about Mongolia, and your readers will read fascinating reports from Mongolia. And I'll do more because of my, my, my also interest in, in the research of the late um, Russian professor, scientist, and writer, Ivan Efremov, Very interesting personality. We don't have time to get into it, but because of that, I had developed interest in, in, in the areas like Mongolia, Mongolia and so forth. Yeah. And whatever reports we've been able to get from there, just confirms my 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 uh, hypothesis now, do you, about oh. areas of UFO visitation.
1: Now, do you think now you, you speculate that there was some sharing of information between the Soviet Union and uh, the United States as far as UFO information goes? Do you think China's in on that mix now, or are they totally independent in your in your you know speculation?
0: I think. They want to be – knowing the Chinese civilization, it's it's different from us. I'm not putting any judgments
2: Uh because
0: for years I had worked with people from China and Japan and so forth. But it's a different civilization. They look at things differently. I would suspect that they do want to keep information to themselves. However, there is this joint Russian-Chinese program to fly to Mars. So there has to be. And if I'm not mistaken, from what I, I, you know, this is something that I'll write more in the future about the Americans, if not actively participating, they have the knowledge of what's going on, and it's not a knowledge that they have to gain through espionage. So there is an exchange of information. I I, I would say the United Kingdom is maybe definitely on it, and maybe to an extent Japan, but definitely in Russia and uh, the United States. And I think Reagan and Gorbachev even hinted about this in, in their historical meetings.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, there was a in- very interesting report that I've got from Russia recently. I got one of their scientists in the in prestigious institute came out with a study uh, where he's proving that the whole this Cold War era was is just smokescreen, a pretext for the Americans to get ready for future UFO invasion or danger and they had been using Soviets as a testing ground I ah. didn't say vice versa but it's a great I just got it a few days ago and this is a, this is not a small uh, fry you know like, this is a scientist who works in one of the prestigious I think in the in their in uh, Canada and United States Institute where the policymakers come from quite a lot now he's got interesting facts and we'll put together an article about that too. But I wouldn't be surprised at all because I, as I mentioned in my other interviews, and I think we still have a few minutes, I want to say it here. I I, I live in the United States from early 1970s, but I know how to get information. I know where to get it, and I'm in touch with, with people in the Soviet Union and uh, in, in, in Russia today. In the darkest times, I was able to get information. Now, there were times in our history Joint history, like late 19, mid and late 1970s, where our nations came very close together, like during the détente period, yeah. where our joint space, space missions took place, and uh, you know Apollo Soyuz. We even had cigarettes, Apollo Soyuz, <laughs> that were produced at the time. Détente was in the air. Even some people in the Soviet Union even thought, who knows, maybe we will have this convergence they speak about. Maybe there will be a smooth, somehow, you know, unity between, you know, our two nations. Maybe the warfare will be put aside. I remember those times. I was not so naive in many ways. You know, you come from the Soviet Union, very cynical. But look, you know, we had joint space missions. Who knows? It ended like a crash in 1980 when the Soviet Union inexplicably invaded a friendly nation of Afghanistan without any explanation. And at that time, Afghanistan had been much more modern than it is today. Yeah. Uh, they were in the Soviet camp, but at the same time, there was much, much more freedom and equality uh, in Afghanistan under the Soviet guidance than in Afghanistan of today. Not not because of the United States, but because of other reasons. But why would they invade and the the, the consequences? We still don't know who actually gave the orders for this invasion. Brinkham died, Rustinov died. We lost all cooperation. Now, look what happens. In those years, we had some of the most interesting UFO waves and cases that I had mentioned from 1982 and U.S. so through the years. Until 1985, when Gorbachev came to power, all of a sudden this, you know, Navy program was shut down to study Kvarkia. A few other things happened. But when Gorbachev comes to power, our nations, again, get together. There is a way, you know, of cooperation and close cooperation with the end result, I think, in 1989 of the Phobos program. Then... The fall of the Soviet Union and, uh, you know, the Soviet Union becomes, goes into poverty, uh, the stage of so called democratization and, and, and a few other things happen, take place. Science is to an extent destroyed and there is no more cooperation per se than, you know, unfortunate incidents take place. And instead of friendship, we have uh, let's say, uh, what should they say? Con- competition,
2: yeah, like a rivalry. So it's like
0: when our nations get together, something breaks them apart. But that's interesting because at that time, this is the you know heyday of of joint cover. I'm sure, yes, Americans were spying on the Soviets and vice versa in terms of UFO research. Where I gave some examples going back to the 1940s, nineteen seventy, Another, and and in the book you will see you you, you people can read about. Cases that you that CIA had declassified, had you know revealed, and it's fascinating what they reveal with all the things that they you know cross out. But even even that is in, in itself is, is is wonderful because you get a lot of information. I can only imagine what's in the files that have not been uh, made public. Yeah, for sure. But but, but 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 I don't know. I'm not sure where we are right now. It, it's it's a strange you know, period in in, in the history of our planet. There are natural disasters. People speak about 2012. But I suspect, personally, that there is definite, at least, working group that meets regularly between the Russian, you know, on the level of Russian government and American government because they definitely hold information on something. If a microchip was in the Soviet hands in 1952, early 1950s, And uh, we still don't know where transistors came from, but somebody may have this information. As an example, if they have such artifacts in their hands, if if something really did crash at Roswell, and they have this, you know, remnants of this, uh, you know, object, then they have to exchange information.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Plus, for safety sort of reasons too, you know, you don't want prevent nuclear nuclear outbreaks and stuff like that. Now, Russia is a fascinating sort of mirror to what is going on here in America as far as UFO studies over the years. Am I safe to presume then that uh, they have also suffered a spate of abductions and all that sort of stuff that is, uh, you know, is tangential to UFOs?
0: Yes. Um, interesting, in the days uh, when the Soviet Union uh, was falling apart, 1990, 1991, um, Ajaza, whom I mentioned before, this prominent Russian UFO researcher, he actually uh, had statistics on large numbers of abductions in, that were taking place in the Soviet Union. Now, I, again, I want to separate it to what's going on in Russia. Uh, there are very interesting, by the way, photos of UFOs that come out from Russia and some other Eastern European countries uh, and, and, you know, areas about. So it's not just, you know, everything ended with the fall of the Soviet Union. No, just not as much. However, if somebody reports an abduction now or contact with aliens, uh, you know, there's always the suspicion that, you know, they, they go on the Internet, they read what the Americans say, and there is this uh, Me Too phenomenon. Yeah, you know, it happened to Me Too. You know, so maybe subconscious. Yeah. It wasn't so in the Soviet times, simply because they didn't have enough information. There were very scarce articles about UFOs. And maybe there was somebody like, me who was interested in this or, or you know ufos of scientific standing much older than me at that time who would collect information but per se an regular human being doesn't have enough time to look into it yes it's a fascinating phenomenon but in the soviet union i mean you you, you can't read about it voice of america doesn't talk too much about it yeah. And you know where, where are you going to get this information? And on the other hand, we still have a few minutes. I want to add another another angle to this, this wonderful and touchy cooperation between communist Soviet Union and the United States. Books by people like Donald Menzel uh, at the bunker yeah. published in the Soviet Union in 1960. You ask me about 1960s. There were so much UFO. There's so many UFO incidents that the Soviets had to put a lid on this flood. What do they do? Do they have their own people write anti-UFO articles? Yes. But to lend credence, uh, veracity to this, they publish a book by an American. There's another UFO debunker that they, they, they love to publish articles of. And, and you know, there were other people too. So, you, you, you know, you see this. They're using Americans who... They, you know, damned and, and 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 you know, said very unpleasant things about in the early years of UFO research, like in early 1950s. It says, well, this is bourgeois invention. What you see in the sky, is not what you see. It doesn't exist. It's all, you know, created by American bourgeois government to fool our workers. But at the same time, they cooperate. Yeah. To the to the extent, like in 1960, wasn't Gary Powers? Shut down in 1960, and here they, you know, publish a book by an American because it was convenient to do so. Yeah. Because they wanted their population to be isolated from UFOs, unlike, again, China, unlike communist China. They wanted to control the situation because I think there was confusion, not just because of the evil effect or because people, you know, who have to study this bloody Marxism Leninism. I remember how they forced us to study this Mambo Jumbo. You know, here is something that cannot be explained by Marxism Leninism. That has nothing to do with it. It comes when it wants to, it flies over the most secret areas. Uh, you know, Soviet airplanes can't shoot it down. How do you explain it? So they would say it doesn't exist. I you know, there was an interesting case. In the far removed strategic areas of Soviet Arctic, in the godforsaken land of Kalima. There was a KGB officer who was very bright and conscientious, who collected information and was UFOs that had been hovering over the areas where he was or landed. So he created his own subunit of researchers, and he was persistent. He had photos. He had reports of uh, eyewitnesses. He collected it all. He sent it to a number of Soviet newspapers. His name was Pavlov. He later writes, and we we have more about him in our USO book. Uh He says, "What, what did I receive from the editors of the newspapers? It was like a rebuke that why do you send this information to us? UFOs don't exist. And here is scientific opinion that they do not exist. Again, 1959, 1960. So this guy went out of his way. He didn't have to do it. All he had to do was his basic AGB work. No, he wanted to find out what it is, and he was shut down. And it happened to, by the way, to even military people who had collected information within the SETCA program, sent it to their, you know, scientific counterparts, never received any feedback. And that's why they got pissed off, excuse me, they got tired, and they, you know, extended their hands to people on the civilian side who wanted to study it. Yeah. And that's, unfortunately, how our research, UFO research continues, whether in the United States or in Russia. You know, grassroots research. Because, as you know, know, Academy of Science, you know, institutes or universities usually don't want to touch it.
1: Yeah, yeah. They don't want anything to do with it.
0: Unlike China.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's interesting what's going on there. Let me see. You really kind of done a lot of the work for me here because you hit all the big points that I wanted to uh, ask you about. Now, I suppose the final thing is just you know, I presume it's sort of like more open over there now as far as the media and the public go with with regards to UFOs. At least they're free to talk about it, and discuss it, and research it and stuff. Is that is that a pretty accurate assessment? Yeah.
0: Yes, of course, the interest wanes down, but with, you know, with the economy. And look, look at this, look, look at the world economy. People want to survive; they don't have much time to study UFOs. Right. But it will change. Meanwhile, the internet has helped so much. Just today, I find new photos of U of UFOs, wonderful photos over the Chukotka area, as an example. This is what's happening. People are armed with means. To record information, video cameras, you know, new new cell phones, everything, and they do, and all this accumulates. So it's my much more open now. Yes, old files containing wonderful information, fantastic information, are out of touch, but you know, still there are people who persistently go on and try to do their best to get this information out in the open.
1: But how is the UFO phenomenon portrayed, you know, by the media? Because here in America, it's treated as sort of a joke. Is it the same way in Russia, or is it more that it's just a straight-up mystery?
0: Well, I would say that newspapers like uh, Pravda, and others pay very interesting, uh, pay, pay, pay attention to it. It's, I don't I don't see much uh, uh, besmirching of UFO phenomenon. Not, not as much as here. No people people are may not be as interested but still there is quite great interest and there are active reporters who dedicate their you know their newspaper pages to UFO phenomenon and to other mysteries paranormal mysteries and so forth but if we speak about UFOs no it's not there's not as much should i say jeering or or making fun of ufologists uh, as, as you can see here. And I don't know why, you know, you have, we have people like Bruce Maccabee, Stan Friedman, and others who are, in my opinion, a little bit more qualified than a number of so-called skeptics who take it upon themselves to study their research. And like I said before, which something that confirms the, 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 the mission, the seriousness of the mission of my research, when I was able to get some of the information Published in back in 1993 in Omni Magazine,
2: mm-hmm.
0: there was an immediate call to by one of the debunkers to you know not to allow any information from the Soviet Union to be published here, and that got me uh, you know I don't want to say upset but uh, put more spirit in my research because nobody you know my father my, my father, we didn't stand for Soviets for Soviet threats. we had to exist with them but when we we could. Fight it, we would, in any way possible. You know, you have to, we believe in freedom. This is why we escaped to the United States. And I'm very glad that Ukraine today is a free country, as an example, and other parts of the former Soviet Union. So no one here is going to tell me what Brezhnev was not able to tell people like Ziegel. Research will go on. I want to say to them, don't worry, the ball is in our court, not yours speaking to those debunkers.
1: There you go. That's the perfect place to uh, wrap this up. I'm going to give you a huge thanks for giving us so much time here. I mean, you can just tell the passion uh, from from listening to you about this subject and the history of Russian and Soviet UFO events and the history of the phenomenon over there. Like I said, you really sort of did my job for me by covering so many of my notes. Uh, without even me even having to prompt you for them. So I really appreciate that. You just did an outstanding job. And, and as you've said throughout the interview, we really have just scratched the surface here of what's in UFO case files of Russia. People should definitely go and pick it up. It's at the website healingsofatlantis.com. And I have a feeling, you know, we could do six more interviews and still not cover all of the material uh, from the Russian world of UFO studies and the UFO phenomenon, because it's it's just massive. I mean, the, just the size of Russia and the history of Russia and the, the phenomenon <laughs> together, yeah. you put those together and you're talking about the perfect storm of uh, just tremendous information and material, and I really appreciate you appearing here on the program to delve into as many aspects of it as we could. So thank you once again, Paul, for coming on the show. Thank you. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Paul Stonehill. As you may have heard, he has a book or two out, and you can find out information on how to pick those up as well as read some articles from him at his website, www.healingsofatlantis.com. All one word, healingsofatlantis.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback, and we've got three emails here. One, a general feedback, and two regarding BOA 2.0. So let's take care of the new website emails first, and then we'll handle the general feedback. The first email comes from Cheryl, no hometown listed, just Cheryl, and here's what she has to say. Please take this with all due respect. Is there any way on your audio page that you can list the topic with the person's name? I lost patience clicking on every name just to find out what the general topic is and gave up and moved on. It's a shame. Love your interviews. Hate the site. Cheryl. Wow. Okay, well, first of all, thank you for writing in, Cheryl. I appreciate your constructive criticism regarding BOA 2.0. Do not worry. I'm not insulted. It was a bit harsh, though, I'll say that, the last line especially, but I can take it, Jeremy can take it, we appreciate the feedback, and we want to hear more from people who have issues regarding 2.0. Some of the things on the website have changed, and we may have changed stuff that you didn't want to see us change, like Cheryl is saying here regarding the BOA Audio Archive page. Rest assured, Cheryl, your request has been passed along to Jeremy, and we're going to have the general topic of each interview posted on the BOA audio archive page on each one of those little cards that has the name of each guest on there for each episode. So we'll have it fixed in no time flat sit tight. I should note, as I did when I wrote Cheryl back, that if you are seriously longing for the old school version of Benal of America, you can simply click the BOA 1.0 button on the top right-hand corner on the BOA homepage. That'll take you to BOA Classic, a self-contained version of the old Banal of America, and you should be able to get all the old stuff you might be missing back, but definitely write to us to let us know what you want us to incorporate onto BOA 2.0. Next email comes from John. No hometown listed, merely John. Here's what he has to say. Hi, Tim. Just wanted to say thanks for all the work you do. I posted just recently on the US of E about how much I like the new format on BOA 2.0. I just wanted to thank you again for the BOA Audio Classic box that featured Jacques Vallée. I had downloaded that episode when it originally aired, and I'm listening to it again now, and all I can say is, wow. Great, thoughtful questions by you, and insightful answers by him. Couldn't ask for better. Looking forward to the Paul Stonehill interview. Best wishes, John. So there you go. There's an email from John with something positive to say about BOA 2.0. We've added an extra dimension to the homepage sort of highlighting classic editions of BOA audio. There's definitely going to be more to that down the line. Trust me, it's not just a placeholder. I see it more as a showcase for truly classic editions of BOA audio, and I'm going to try to at least develop that into something more. I'm glad you enjoyed the Jacques Vallée interview on your second listening, John. I hope you dug this week's edition of the program with Paul Stonehill. And, of course, thank you for writing in. I'm not going to beat a dead horse too much longer, folks. I just want to say one more time, go check out BOA 2.0. Send us your feedback. We definitely appreciate the people who write to us and just say, I love it. It's awesome. This is amazing. This is fantastic. We've gotten tons of emails from people. Who just say that and we appreciate that that really helps us gauge how people are feeling but we definitely want to hear constructive criticism from folks out there who may be looking at the new face of Benal of America and find something in it they don't like find something they want changed find something that just isn't sitting right with them don't just let it eat away at you or annoy you write to us let us know what you want us to fix what you think of the site and we'll incorporate your input into BOA 2.0. It is definitely a fluid situation here at Banal of America, and as we stress here on the program all the time, this is a grassroots organization. This is a community-based program and website. The listeners and the readers are just as much a part of Banal of America as myself, the staff, and BOA Audio. So help us shape BOA 2.0 with your collective vision. Final email this week does not deal with BOA 2.0. It just covers a few different areas regarding BOA audio. It comes from Mike in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and here's what he has to say. First off, I love the show. I found you in the summer of 2008, and I have listened to all of the shows in the archive. The only thing I don't like is when you shut it down for a few months. I understand, however. I have a suggestion for show guests. First, how about interviewing the writers you have? I've read their articles and find them to be very interesting. It would be cool to know what experiences, if any, took them in this direction and just basically who they are as people. My next idea is William Zabel. Everyone seems to wonder what happened to him. Did he know too much and get kidnapped, or was he BSing everyone and was caught and is now hiding in shame? Herein lies the mystery that has become William Zabel. If you're ever in the Minneapolis area, give me a shout and we could get together for a beer. Then I could tell you all about my ghost stories. Just kidding. Good luck to the Celtics because, well, the Lakers left Minneapolis before I was born and the Timberwolves suck. Thanks, Mike in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks for writing in, Mike. You've given me a few things here to talk about. First of all, glad you discovered the show site that you dug into the archives stay tuned lots of great episodes fresh new episodes coming at you over the next few months or so regarding having the boa staff on the program this is definitely something i've wanted to do for the last few years if there's one person who's keeping us from interviewing the staff on boa audio that's leslie she refuses to come on the program and do any interviews she's not appearing on any other programs either she's mysterious and elusive And since she's been at BOA since the very beginning, I almost feel guilty interviewing any of the other writers since we haven't had Leslie on the program yet. So maybe if Leslie gives us her blessing to have the other staff members on the program, we'll have them on the show sometime in the future. Because I definitely want to talk to Regan Lee, Marla Pena, Rochelle Hawks, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, and all the other great folks who contribute to Been All of America and showcase them here at the end of the program for all you great BOA Audio listeners and the BOA readers who've been checking out their columns for oh so long at BOA. Regarding William Zabel, I don't even know what to say. No one does know what happened to him as far as I know, and I have no idea, and I've been trying to get in touch with him. We've covered this at the end of the program numerous times, but it's worth mentioning once again probably about, Two or three months ago, I wrote to William Zabel, called his house, left a message on the machine. No answer. William Zabel remains incommunicado, but once I find out any information on him or get word from him on what's going on, I will report it as breaking major news somewhere at BOA, either on the website or on BOA Audio. Most likely both, because this has become a mystery in and of itself. Regarding the offer for beer, Mike, I am definitely going to hold you to that, my friend. I need to start making a list of all the people around America who want to meet up and have a beer. Maybe I can put together some kind of BOA beer tour where I just travel across the country and back, stopping in various cities in America and having beers with BOA Audio listeners, and then you're going to have to let me stay at your house, of course, to make this whole thing work. But, Mike, you're number one on the list here. You're our hub in the middle of the nation for the BOA Beer Tour. So thank you very much for that. And of course, yes, good luck to the Celtics. Tonight is Game 6 of the NBA Finals against the hated L.A. Lakers. It's been insane here in Boston. It's been insane at BOA HQ. Lots of shouting, lots of excitement, lots of tension. It's been an amazing experience and a really pleasant surprise here to kick off the summer of 2010, this remarkable Celtics run in the NBA playoffs. I know a lot of folks out there are just rolling their eyes at me right now, but trust me, folks, it has been awesome, and I'm hoping that the Celtics can pull through here and finish off the Lakers tonight in Game Six, or God forbid, in Game Seven, because Adam Go Rightly, lifelong LA Laker fan, has been giving me the business here throughout the NBA Finals, and I'm just dying to taunt him and humiliate him with a Celtics victory over his beloved Lakers so there you go covered all the stuff for Mike's email thank you for writing in Mike very much appreciate it also thank you for writing in John and Cheryl I've been begging you for feedback here regarding BOA 2.0 throughout the end of the program and even at the beginning so let me give you the information on how to get in touch with me if you don't know it already you can go to Benal of America and click the contact button you'll get to the fancy new redesigned BOA 2.0 contact page. Click on my name there and you'll be able to get in touch with me or just write to Audio at hotmail.com. That's a secondary email address we use here for the podcast. And finally, you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Lots of fun stuff going on there. As we roll into the summer of 2010, new members joining up all the time, new members posting all the time. We love to hear your feedback on not just BOA Audio, but the website, the writers' columns, the world of esoterica, and, of course, pop culture. It is BOA's Paranormal Playground, theusofe.com. Check it out. And, of course, I'm on all the different social networking sites, so if you want to get in touch with me via MySpace, Facebook, or Twitter... I'm on all those great places as well. Don't send me your Mafia War requests, though, because I'm going to have to delete those. They drive me up the wall, as we've said here at the end of the program before. In other words, there's just tons of ways to get in touch with me, and we want to hear your feedback on everything BOA-related. If you keep it short and pithy or long and thought-provoking, we'll try to include it here at the end of the program on BOA Audio listener feedback. You know what comes next. It's time for the thanks portion of the show. Allow me to give a heartfelt and hearty thanks to the BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Sena, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Annie Carolin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. We got a bunch of new columns up at the website from the BOA staff. Regan Lee's Trickster's Realm covers the spiral ufo phenomenon leslie's gray matters looks at the esoteric power of stones and why she does not like the new age type folks richard thomas's room 101 has an in-depth text interview with dean hagland of x-files and lone gunman fame and tina senna's esotericana looks at the power of three in the world of the paranormal so Four new columns from the outstanding BOA staff. Tons more stuff coming at you down the pipeline from the writers at Benall of America. They are fantastic folks, and they do a great job providing a wealth of thought-provoking columns at BOA. Thanks to them, of course, as always. And we say it week in and week out here on the program, but it is true, my friends. If you're only listening to Benall of America audio and you're not reading the columns at BOA, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Almost done with the end of the show here. You know what the next segment of the end cap is, and that is the request for donations. I don't beat my listeners and readers over the head with requests for donations to Benall of America and BOA Audio, but trust me, I need your help, folks. This whole enterprise is very expensive, From the bandwidth and web hosting to the production of BOA Audio, it is just a very financially taxing operation that is greatly helped from BOA readers and listeners who can send us donations. How do you do that? How can you help support Banal of America? That's simple. First of all, if you like to do the online thing, you just go to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. That's right there on the front page. It's big. It's nice-looking. Jeremy Boston made a new PayPal button just for BOA 2.0. Click that. That'll guide you through the process. What if you're one of those people that just doesn't trust the Internet? You want to send me something via snail mail? That's perfectly fine. As we told you at the end of the program last week, we've got a P.O. box for BOA. Here is the address for folks who want to mail donations via snail mail. To Banal of America. The address is as follows Tim Banal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. B I N N A L L, P O Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. Let me spell out that last line for you: Pinehurst, P I N E H U R S T, Mass. You can just put M A, and the zip code is 01866. So, once again, all in one big breath, Tim Banal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866. And whether you're making a donation via online means or snail mail, the story remains the same. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, we've got a double guest showcase here for you and a special sort of, I guess you could almost call it a simulcast, as we welcome the hosts of the popular paranormal podcast, Paratopia. How's that for alliteration? My good friends Jeremy Vaney and Jeff Ritzman for a little special we're calling Aloha to Paratopia As some folks may know, the Paratopia podcast is undergoing a major change in their format. They are leaving behind the old-school style of podcasting and moving into a listener-contributed content style of program. It's quite a major revolution for the Paratopia folks, and we're going to have them on to not just talk about the new style of Paratopia that's going to be coming soon, to the esoteric audio listeners out there, but also reflect on the classic Paratopia, the past 70 episodes of their program that they were putting out for the last year and a half. Look back on their ghost hunting expedition, their trip to the X Conference a few years ago, and their role in the just amazing Emma Woods story that broke back in February or so. Plus, we're going to talk about the world of podcasting, the world of the paranormal, the world of ufology. And since we're all kind of buddies, it definitely turns into a jam session in a big way. And I think a very revealing look at some of the movers and shakers of the online paranormal scene, the guys behind Paratopia. It is Aloha to Paratopia next time on BOA Audio with our guests Jeremy Vaney and Jeff Ritzman. Definitely want to tune into that one, my friends. It's going to give you an amazing glimpse behind the Paratobia curtain. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big thanks to Paul Stonehill for coming on the show. Big thanks to Cheryl, John, and Mike for writing in for BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, most of all, big, big, super huge thanks to all you great folks out there, the BOA Audio listeners. Eventually, I'm going to run out of hyperbole to describe how awesome you folks are. You're the best. You just make this job so much fun, and you definitely make it worth my while. If it wasn't for you, we would have closed up shop a long time ago, but you just keep pushing us to produce new and exciting and entertaining and informative programming for you week in and week out here on BOA Audio. Thank you for making us a part of your esoteric audio playlist. So until next time, this is Tim Benal. Thank you for listening and signing off.